You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. So today is the second Sunday of Lent. And as your body starts complaining bitterly about the absence of chocolate, alcohol or caffeine, either individually or all at once, or whatever else it is that you are abstaining from, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Scripture and see if this Word of God shall not feed us and nourish us in ways that sugar and caffeine and alcohol cannot. Carling didn't do Scriptures, but if they did, <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? So it gets better. We're going to spend some time this morning in the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the lectionary readings for Lent 2024. Uh, And in actual fact, John teed me up a little bit a couple of weeks back with this, which is really good of him. Um, So we're going to be spending a little bit of time in Mark. Now, uh, what we're going to do is land on some verses in Mark chapter 8. But in order to get there, we're going to do a little bit of an exploration of Mark and whiz through some things together. But I think it'd be a good idea to pray before we do that. Why don't we bow our heads or close our eyes or however you want to make yourself comfortable. Father, thank you for the wonderful mercy that has come to us and keeps coming to us, the mercy that cleanses and renews and makes whole. We thank you that you are coming to us in your mercy now through your word as you speak to us. And we ask that we might be willing and open to receive you, to receive your word. Uh, May our hearts welcome and devour this word as it comes to us, that it might nourish us and do good to us and glorify you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. All right, so Mark's gospel, I don't know how well you know Mark's gospel, it's a bit of a favorite of City Church. Mark's gospel begins like this, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's an announcement. It starts off with this announcement of good news. But before the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was Israel's scripture. And the prophet Isaiah and others called Israel to attention. So we get this, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Mark wastes no time, well, ever, actually, in his gospel, but he wastes no time in showing us that this messenger, this preacher in the wilderness is John the Baptist. John is this wild man of Judea, Elijah-like in skins and wild-eyed intensity, preaching a message of baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins in preparation for the coming of the Lord. So the scene is set, but John is not the main event. He's merely the announcer. He's merely the one who sets it all up for us, if you like. And now, ladies and gentlemen, coming in from the wilderness in a blaze of glory, it's the one you've all been waiting for. And we look around. Wow, the Lord is coming. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire anywhere. 
rumbles of Sinai thunder and flashes of lightning. We look and we wait. Wow, the mountains will melt like wax before the presence of the Lord of all the earth. We're looking. We're anticipating glory. Here he is. Here he comes. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Oh, not quite what we were anticipating. To say Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee is a little bit like saying Jesus came from Castleford or Selby or something. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> like a town of no particular note. Oh, right, oh, okay, that's unusual. Let me tell you a story. A couple of years ago, uh, I went to Castle Howard, which if you live in York, it's kind of, you have to, don't you? Uh, I went to Castle Howard to see the Chemical Brothers. Quiet, I know. The Chemical Brothers at Castle Howard. I mean, normally at Castle Howard, it's Tony Hadley from Spandau Ballet, or it's Catherine Jenkins, or it's the Jules Holland big band. But no, the Chemical Brothers, what a bizarre thing. My next door neighbor got tickets, had one free, took me along, it was fantastic. Now, I'm not really much of a dance music aficionado, but I did enjoy it, it was great. And there was a moment in the gig where there was this massive, great build. I mean, it was like this sort of build-up that just went on and on. Peter would have hated it. Um, it was kind of building and building, like, and it's just kind of one of those ones that's kind of... Everything's kind of contracting, and like the whole crowd are just waiting to go bananas when it drops. And, and just as it's about to go, it, boom, the power went down. <laughs> and you never heard such a, a loud collective groan as at that moment. Oh. The thing is, I don't actually think it was an accident, I think it was on purpose because there was still power for the screens and stuff. I think it was just a big tease. I think the, the Chemical Brothers were saying, ha, ha, let's get everybody worked up and then let them down. And then let's bring them back again with something else. Interesting. Mark's announcement of the coming of the Lord might seem a bit like that. Big build up, big ramping up of anticipation. And then, oh, is it a letdown? Is it an accident? Is it a mistake? Or is it very intentional? It is very intentional. Mark will spend the next six and a half chapters or so of his gospel showing us in subtle but mind-blowingly amazing ways that Jesus of Nazareth is the King of Israel and is also none other than the embodiment of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of all the earth. That's what the gospel starts announcing. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the term for the king. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one, which could be a prophet, but more often is a king. Son of God. What did God say to Samuel? One of your sons will sit on your throne. He will be to me a son, I will be to him a father. Son of God in its first century context means Messiah and King, okay? So we're teed up to expect that the King is coming, but we're also teed up to anticipate that the Lord is coming too. And Mark wants us to see, and I'm going to try and show you how in Mark, King and Lord come together in the one person of Jesus. Okay? Ready for this? Okay, let's go. Mark chapter 2. 
Jesus is at home in his house. That's what the Greek literally says. He was in his house, so he had a house somewhere. Surprise, surprise. Most people don't really realize that. And Jesus at home in his house experiences what nobody ever, ever wants to experience, which is a few couple of guys on the roof pulling their roof pieces and lowering someone down through the roof into the lounge. I mean, you're sitting chilling at home watching a bit of Netflix and boom, there's some guy being lowered down into your living room. Some friends lower their paralyzed friend down to Jesus because they can't get to him through the crowds. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus doesn't say, God forgives you, my son, but he himself forgives. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. There's no explanation, there's no caveat. Jesus just does in his own authority what only God has the authority to do, forgive sins. Now, the scribes are bang on about this. It says some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are correct. Only God can forgive sins, but they are wrong. It's not blasphemy. Because for Jesus to forgive sins in his own authority without saying the Lord forgive you or away from the temple or anything else is an indication that this indeed is the Lord, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Lord God of Israel who himself forgives sins. And he has authority to do so, and he proves it by healing the chap. I like the idea that Jesus is in his house. You know, God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem that had been through changes, let's say. But Jesus in his house forgives sins in his authority. Are you part of the church? You're his house. Jesus is present among us and forgives sins. Beautiful. He's here to forgive sins today. Moving on, Mark chapter 4. We find Jesus and the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee when a serious storm breaks, and Jesus is sleeping in the stern on a pillow. The disciples are freaking out. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and a flat calm follows. Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was a dead calm. Now, either it's a pretty cool party trick or there's something else going on. What matters most in this story is what doesn't get said explicitly. Something is there in the background and it's something that comes again from Israel's scriptures. In the Psalms, and probably Exodus and other places in the Old Testament, there is one person who commands the roaring of the sea to cease, and that's Yahweh. Psalm 65, seven, speaking of Yahweh, says you silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. There are three or four other references to this in the Psalms. It's God who does this stuff, only God has the authority and the power to speak to the chaotic winds and waves and bring peace and still things. But here Jesus stands up, slightly ticked from being woken up by the freaking out disciples, no doubt, and just in his own authority. It's not a prayer. There's no mention of God. There's no citing of the psalm. Jesus just says himself, peace, be still. And there's a flat calm. Then comes that famous question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Indeed, 
Only God does these things. Jesus is being portrayed by means of what he does, by allusions to Israel's scriptures. He's being shown to be the embodiment of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. What about Mark chapter 6? Jesus sees crowds. He gets to the other side of the lake. He sees crowds and he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus began to teach them and then he feeds them miraculously. 5,000 people. You know the feeding of the 5,000. Again, really impressive miracle. But what's the story behind it? Well, here's the reference from Mark. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The story behind the story here is Ezekiel. And one verse out of many that we could look at from Ezekiel has this. I myself, this is the Lord speaking, will be the shepherd of my sheep. In a context where the prophet is lambasting the priests and the rulers of his day for being dodgy shepherds, and in the ancient world, shepherd was a common metaphor for kings and rulers, In the ancient context, the prophet says God will shepherd his people. He will be the shepherd of his sheep. He will feed them. He will rescue them. He will guard them. And then in Mark, we find Jesus himself doing exactly that again with no reference to God being the shepherd of the sheep. He just does it because Mark wants us to see that this is the Lord whom the prophets spoke about. In the same chapter... Jesus walks on the sea, and the disciples again are freaking out. By the way, it's good news when you read the Gospels and you find the disciples freaking out. Um, If you're someone who is given to being a little bit more on the anxious side of things, then you find, well, that's just like me, and that's good, because it puts you right in the middle of things and makes you just like a prime object for seeing something fresh of Jesus this morning. If you're freaking out today about circumstances in life, pay attention. Because God may reveal himself in Jesus and you might find that things change. So Jesus comes walking to the disciples. They're rowing, they're having a hard time, they're making torturous progress. Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. And there's another underlying Old Testament thing going on. Just like all of the Gospels, particularly Mark, for today at least. This one's a bit more mysterious. So here's the Mark reference. He came towards them early in the morning walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by. The Old Testament reference that lies beneath this comes from the book of Job, and chapter 9. In a passage that talks about the glories of Yahweh the Lord and how he rules over creation, we get this. He, that's Yahweh, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Brilliant! So the Lord God tramples the waves of the sea. He walks on the waters. And here is Jesus walking on the waves of the sea, trampling the waves of the sea. And then Job says in verse 11 of Job 9, Look, he passes by me, and I do not see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So in the passage in Job, the Lord is spoken of as being the Lord of all creation. He tramples the waves of the sea. He passes by Job so near, but Job kind of struggles to discern and grapple with the reality of who God is. 
And in Mark's gospel, Jesus comes walking on the sea and he was going to pass by them. The disciples are struggling to recognize and understand who Jesus is. This is the Lord of all the earth in the person of Jesus walking on the sea. He's going to pass by them. Will they recognize? Now, another cool thing to note is that the verb to pass by in the Old Testament is the verb when Moses is on the mountain and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, well, I can't do that, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let all my glory pass by. The disciples are seeing the revelation of the glory of God. This is a moment in the Gospels where God is revealing God as Jesus passes by, trampling on the sea, doing what Yahweh the Lord does. Will the disciples recognize? Can you see him? This is the revelation of the Lord. It's revelation of the glory of God in Jesus passing by the disciples. So we're looking at all these things because I want you to see and understand how Mark portrays Jesus. Who Jesus is, is the most important question that you could wrestle with for life and faith. We've looked at the fact that Mark portrays Jesus as both Messiah, a king, he's the Christ, the Son of God, and Lord. He is the embodiment of the divine being all in one. Those are the things that start the gospel of Mark. And then the first eight chapters unfold, they extend both these themes, Jesus is king and Lord. But then we get to halfway through chapter 8, and that from there through to the end of chapter 10, there's a little bit of a shift that happens, and that's where we're going to focus for the last bit of the sermon today. There's a shift to language of being on the way with Jesus. There are three places where there are some specific references to Jesus being on the way. In English translations, it differs from time to time, but it's always the same word in Greek. The word is hodos, the, like way. It's the same word that is used when Mark talks about prepare the way of the Lord. Mark's shown us the way of the Lord through the first eight chapters. And now, halfway through chapter eight, the way of the Lord is going to get some redefining and it all gets a little bit dark. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. This is one of three occasions in Mark 8 to 10 where Jesus speaks about what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. Every single one of them, every single one of them is just after Jesus and the disciples are described one way or the other as being on the way. Right? The prediction of sufferings and the language of being on the way all go together in these middle chapters of Mark. What's happening here is that the way of the Lord is being redefined in Mark as the way of Jesus. 
And the way of Jesus is being clearly portrayed as the way of the cross. Therefore, the way of the Lord is the way of the cross. Do you understand? Jesus is being shown as the Lord, the embodiment of the Lord. The way of Jesus, who is the embodiment of the Lord, is the way of the cross. That means that God's way, the way of the Lord, the long-awaited and anticipated revealing of the glory of the Lord is the way of the cross. No accidents, no horrific going wrong. This is the revelation of God's glory. Peter doesn't like what Jesus is saying one little bit. Takes him aside, began to rebuke him. Turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. We don't know, I kind of wish that we did know, the contents of the conversation between Peter and Jesus. But we can probably safely assume that Peter's just not having any of this suffering and rejection for the Messiah business. He's just said a few verses previous, You are the Lord, you are the Messiah, you're the King of Israel. And in Peter's view, the Messiah just doesn't get beaten up and suffer and re get rejected. The Messiah wins. The Messiah wins. You're the Messiah. You win. And what Jesus says is simple, but <clears throat> very theologically weighty. You aren't thinking about divine things, Peter. The way of the cross is the way of divinity for Jesus. It's the highest revelation of the character and reality of God. And to resist that way is to be an adversary of God. Jesus probably doesn't say that Peter is the devil, by the way. Satan or Satan is a word that comes from Hebrew. And in Hebrew, and in the Hebrew Bible, Satan is never a name. It's always ho Satan, the Satan, the adversary. Jesus is basically saying, Peter, you're an adversary. Get behind me. You're a distraction. This is not helpful, buddy. He doesn't say, you devil, you. It's more, you're, a, you're an adversary. You don't understand. You've got your mind on human things. You don't understand the things of God. This is the stuff of God. Next one, Hannah, please. So the second Sunday of Lent, What's the point of Lent? Well, it's not to give something up for a season that might possibly be of benefit to your diet or your mental health. I'll stop watching dark, horrible TV programs for Lent. Great, good idea, but that's not really the point of Lent. I won't eat chocolate for however long, and then I'll pick it up big time after Easter. I'll, I'll go on, I won't drink any booze. I'll kind of just do a delayed, dry January. It's not really the point. You can't simply do the cross in the way that a tourist might do the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you know? It's not really how this thing works. Have you heard of what three words? You come across this? If you haven't seen what three words, I, I find this fascinating. Some clever guys or girls or whatever somewhere figured out that we could make a much more effective navigation system. They took every three square meters on the Earth's surface and gave it a unique three-word code so that you could find any three-meter 
squared area on the face of the planet, anywhere. I mean, it's brilliant, because there's just endless combinations of, of three words. So you might be interested to know that the front door area of the citadel out there is, amusingly, modern feast cloud. I mean, blood and fire surely would have been better, but ah, you can't have everything, I suppose. I think that what three words could be very, very useful for us as a church when it comes to picnic in the park in the summer because nobody ever knows where we're supposed to be meeting. So all we, all we need to do is say, I'll meet you at Dent Cloth Colleague, and then we can head over together to locate Saints Safety. Genuine what three word locations in Homestead Park, I'll have you know. See if you can find it later if you're bored. Imagine how easy it is if you've got a hot date with someone as well. No need to worry about finding a restaurant. I'll see you at 8 p.m. at Bort Crass Notion. Superb. Off you go. Now, if you're a Christian, there is a, three, uh, there is a what three words that doesn't locate you in a three-meter square grid, but it invests every place you inhabit with significance because you are in Christ and Christ dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. And the what three words for Every Christian is on the way. As a Christian, you are on the way with Jesus. You are someone who has been called to participate in the way of Christ, which is on the way, and it's the way of the cross. It's not a holiday, it's not Lent, it's a lifestyle, it's something that you live always, every day, for the rest of your life. It's not a destination as such, it's a journey, it's a process. It's something that you embrace and do all the time. And it's a combination of words on the way that works its way into every other combination of three words that you might say or think that somehow locate you somewhere in your life that maybe identify you somehow. Dead end job, maybe. My life sucks, perhaps. Why always me? I am cool, maybe. Love me, please. Must work hard. Scared to death, could do better. Trying too hard, lazy as hell. Dare not stop falling to pieces. The call of Lent is a call to be a people whose what three words is on the way. And that calling is to be a people who forego the drive, the itch, the aspirational energy to self-secure because you feel out of control or to try and fend off anything that threatens the self-built and fragile sense of order that you've constructed around yourself because you feel weak and vulnerable in the big bad world. The news is this, we all feel weak and vulnerable in the big bad world. There are those who admit it and throw themselves and lean hard on the arms of Jesus, or there are those who don't, and try to build castles of sand around themselves to protect themselves from the onrushing tide. On the way is the way of a Christian. It's the way of excruciating vulnerability. It's the way of having to trust Jesus 
that losing one's life is the way of finding it. That losing one's life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel is the way to discover life in him. Let's have the next slide up, Hannah. If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's not just a once-off, it's a lifestyle. Next one. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. The way of the Lord, which is the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross, is a way that is better than any other that you could ever, ever, ever decide to set out on. Because it's the way of finding life in Jesus. It takes faith because you need to know as you embrace this way, and you need to trust that when Jesus says that you will find life if you lose it and deny yourself for his sake, you, there is life in him. So believe him, City Church. Follow him. Find life in him today. Learn that Lent is not a little holiday, a little distraction. Learn that Lent isn't just something that you do as a kind of little done myself denial bit now, but it's a life in which we put to death things that belong to ego and self-securing, and we throw ourselves into the arms of the one who is King and Lord whose promises are true, and whose mercies flow like a river for us. Why don't we pray to close? Jesus, you are Lord and King, and we worship you. And we tremble at the reality that God has shown himself to be God in the person of Jesus on the way of the cross. Think of all the, all the ways that you could have revealed yourself, the ways that you did, pillars of cloud, pillars of fire, flashes of lightning, the sound of a voice that was like a trumpet. And yet here you show yourself the most clearly, the climax of the revelation of God is in this, the man, Christ Jesus, who is the embodiment of the Lord. And you call us to walk with you. You don't call us just to admire you, just to believe some things about you, to have the right set of answers to things. You've called us to walk with you and in you. Holy Spirit, help us. You know that we all want to cling on. We all want to grasp. We all want to seize. We all want to construct safety barriers around ourselves. Help us to put those things down, that we might receive life in you, and that we might find that in you, is fullness of life and in you is hope that goes beyond the grave for your sake we ask and for our joy in you and our hope in you amen